The scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered round him, and he was by the lake. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years. She had endured much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the source of life. We pray for your life to come into our lives and give us that life which is life indeed. Bread of life, feed us. 
satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst, even through the word that has been read and the word that is now proclaimed. In your holy name we pray. Amen. In our Lenten sermons in this season leading up to Good Friday and Easter, we're focusing on the significance of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, thinking about different themes related to the death of Jesus that we find in Scripture, and in particular relating to the cross of Jesus. So Jesus commands those who follow him to carry their cross. We've thought about that. We've thought about boasting in the cross of Christ, the depth of God's love for us in the death of Jesus. We are going to be thinking about being reconciled to God through the cross of Christ and being transformed in our moral and in our spiritual lives by the cross of Christ. And today we come to a theme that focuses specifically on the cross in relationship to death. I want us to think about the subject of death in connection with the death of Jesus this single act in history in which God invades our world and dies for us. And in his death, the scriptures tell us he brings death as the ultimate reality of all of creation to an end. Or the processes begin by which that end is secure. As an old Puritan John Owen called it, we're focusing on the death of death in the death of Christ or the crucifixion of death in the crucifixion of Christ. Let me put it like this, just to clarify the picture. When Jesus dies on the cross in his death, he not only demonstrates the incredible love of the Creator who should stoop down so low as to be put to death by those whom he himself had created, who take him and crucify him, What wondrous love is this, that God should do this for us. He not only bears our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be reconciled to God and to one another, we call this the atonement, but in his death, he takes our death that we are due, due to sin, he takes all of death in the universe everywhere, and as it were, he swallows it up. He bears it in his body on the cross, and through the resurrection, He throws us, as it were, into the depth of the sea. That is the ultimate destiny of death as the profound, most important reality of life is over. Its power is gone. So this morning I want us to think of the cross of Christ in this light. And to begin with, I want us to explore some of the issues relating to death itself. Now all of us know that there are times when death does in fact come to us as a blessed relief. When suffering is prolonged, there's no end in sight. When life's energy is gone, personality has been destroyed. For many decades, person has become more and more frail, perhaps unrecognizable. The body can barely move or function. There's a great deal of pain. Memory has gone. Mobility has gone. We know all of this stuff. There are times when a person dies and we say, ah, peace at last, a blessed relief. And every one of us know that kind of blessing. My parents both had cancer. My father died within five weeks of being diagnosed with colon cancer. I was 23 at the time. My mother had breast cancer and then she had bone cancer. This was about 10 years later. And she was just coming out of remission when she dropped dead one morning with a heart attack. It was painful. And yet, in a way, I'm grateful that neither of them suffered long. They did not know prolonged suffering as many do. 
And indeed, a remarkable thing happened in the doctor's office where my mother had gone over the period of a few years when she had cancer. A nurse wrote me a letter. And in that letter, she spoke of getting to know my mother and knew she was coming out of remission. And she had this phrase, she had this phrase, sad, but not sad, sad, but not sad. And I was so grateful for that phrase at that time. A relief that there was no suffering, deep and prolonged sadness at the death, but a relief that there was very little suffering in the end. She had to begin with, but that new suffering was not going to come. The fact remains, though, that for all that blessed relief, most of the time, there's something in us that fights against death. As if we know that death actually is not a friend. There may be times when it's a friend, but ultimately it's not a friend, but it's an enemy to be conquered, and all of us in life know this as well. So we received the news of another mass shooting as bad news. This is terrible news. It's an enormous tragedy. Why? Because we see death as an enemy. We see sudden death in particular as an enemy. We see the death of young people as an enemy. And even when the old, when there is a sense of blessed relief, we still weep, we still cry, as if there is still ultimately something wrong with this. Or we receive news about a debilitating disease. It could be cancer, which is in my family. It could be COVID, which affects all of us. And what do we do? Do we just sit back and say, that's okay? All going to die, that's natural. Do nothing about it? No, we fight it. We fight it with everything that we can, with vaccines and safety protocols or whatever else that we do. And we spend millions in our society improving safety in all kinds of ways within our vehicles, our cars, our planes, our trains, or on a work site. Number one priority for a building project should never be on time and on budget. It should be safety first on the work site. No accidents in the middle of a project. And why? Well, because there's something in us which fights against death and against the processes of death. And we want to preserve life, both length and quality. So this is built into the very fabric of our being, somehow that the very existence of death and the things that lead to death are not right, that life was not intended to be this way, and so we resist it. Rather like those moments, I don't know if they still have them, but MasterCard used to have an ad which called uh, certain moments priceless. You can't pay for it. It's as if time, you want it to stretch for all eternity. And the view that we should have about life is, yes, life should stretch for all eternity, and that death is an interloper in this. We see this view that death is an interloper in so many of the stories in the pages of Holy Scripture. In our Scripture reading today, for example, uh, we read about the daughter of this man by the name of Jairus. And this daughter is sick, and she's really sick, and she's dying, and Jairus is in enormous pain, and he goes to the only one he sees who might be able to relieve the suffering of his daughter and to sustain her life. But there's pathos in the story. You can almost feel the pain in this parent with a child where death is inching to creep into life. And the news comes in the story that the daughter actually dies, and you might think that Jesus would just quit right there and then. Most people do. Most physicians would quit right there and then. But Jesus does not quit right there and then. He is not going to let death overpower his power in the world. And so he goes with Jairus and speaks 
to the daughter. And when he arrives, says, get up, time to get up. For him, for him, she has died, but it's no more than sleep. He has the power over death, and he exercises it in that story. And we all go, great, that's how it ought to be. We may not see it in our lives, for the most part here, but that's how life ought to be. So death is an enemy, and it's an enemy not just in its reality as death as such, but in all the processes that lead to death, in pain and suffering and weariness in our bodies. And when indeed we do say it's a relief, it's only secondary to the primary thought which drives all of life, that we are to resist as much as we can the powers of death at work within the world. The world is not as it ought to be, is the driving force in the bottom of our hearts, and it should be otherwise. And this, of course, is the biblical point of view, that death is an interloper in this world and not characterizing the world as it ought to be. There is something wrong with the universe, an intruder mangling up life, which should ultimately be endless, the enemy of God's good creation. This is certainly the theme of the opening chapter of the whole of the Bible or the opening few chapters of the whole of the Bible when we come into the Garden of Eden and when God creates human beings, he creates them so that they might live and live forever. But he holds them accountable for their choices. And in the second chapter of Genesis, we read these words, you may freely eat, says God to Adam and Eve, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. No death until that point, but at that point, they choose. Even though they know the consequences, the human beings choose to divorce themselves from the God who gives them life and to go their own way, and death kicks in and begins to spoil everything. Not if you remember the story that Adam and Eve die immediately, physically, that is, but the processes of death begin and enter the story. So you go on to the third chapter of Genesis, and there's pain in childbirth, there are weeds and thistles in the garden, there's work that instead of being pleasurable turns into hard labor, there are relationships with all kinds of people which instead of being loving and caring become disjointed and oppressive, and above all, death is manifested in a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with God, an alien, an alienation from the Creator who alone contains life within himself. So think of it this way, that God is the oxygen supply. And when we turn our backs against God, it's as if we're cutting off the cord and we're turning our backs against the source of life, as if there was life in ourselves, which there is not. There is only life in God and in our connection with God. We're like the moon. And God is like the sun. And the moon has no light unless the sun shines upon it. Or we're like a cell phone with a dying battery and we've got no charger with us to bring that cell phone back to life, or we're like a balloon which loses its air. And there is no way that it can fill itself with air again and be back as it was at one time. We only have life because of our connection to God, our connection to another. And without that connection, we're fragile. And life is fragile. And we die. 
And this fragility affects not only us, now that sin has entered the world, but according to the scripture, it affects the whole of the universe. In scientific terms, this leads to what we call the second law of thermodynamics. Some of you know the second law of thermodynamics, that everything in the world is winding down, and that energy is becoming more and more dissipated until one day the energy in the universe will be so dissipated that it simply withers away, runs out of steam, and dies. And it's with this view of death in mind that much of Scripture, and especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, but elsewhere as well, that Scripture speaks of the salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ, through the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus as something that touches our lives both individually and as a whole, as the whole universe the whole universe subject to the power of death. So that when Jesus dies and rises to life again, he not only does so to forgive us our sins, he does so to free us from the bondage of death and to inaugurate a new age in the universe in which death does not have the final word. And this is what he came to do. So remember what we read at Christmas time, often from Isaiah chapter 9 or Matthew 4. The hope that we have in Jesus, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Remember these words. And then, those who walk in the region and the shadow of death, on them has the light shone. The early Christians believed that Jesus came to destroy the power of death, to end the reign of death, in every part of our lives and in every part of the created order to inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth, the scriptures say, a new age in which life, abundant and eternal, is what lies before us and not the end, which is death. So listen again to uh, the words of scripture from Genesis, but also to a number of other passages that I simply want to read for you, and you'll find these in the sermon notes that you have, and if you haven't downloaded them, you can do so now. But you'll find them in your bulletin today, and it might be helpful to follow along with me. Genesis chapter 2 again. It's so critical, indeed, it's the foundational verse to help us understand the whole of what follows in Scripture afterwards. The Lord commands Adam and Eve, saying, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, the day you ignore my word and turn your back against me who is the source of life. It's just a matter of fact. The oxygen supply will go. You shall die. In Romans chapter 5, Paul explains the ramifications of this action like this. He says, sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. And so death spread to all because all have sinned. We're doing exactly the same as Adam and Eve. Every single one of us makes this same choice with the same consequence. And this affects not just our spiritual life, but our physical life as well. So Paul cries out in Romans chapter 7, and he has a tough time with his body. We don't know exactly what ailments he had, but it's very clear that he has some ailments in his body. He cries out, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And some of us may feel that more than others. The forces of death at work in our bodies. We are not who we were. But then he adds these words. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul 
has the beginning of this hope in his mind that Jesus came to do something not just about our broken relationship with God, though that's critical, not just so that we could be free from sin, though that's critical, but to end the rampage of death in our spiritual lives and in our physical lives and indeed the universe. And again, those words from Matthew 4 and Isaiah 9. It was to the people who sat in darkness that Jesus came, those who sit in the region and the shadow of death. And the hope is that he will do something about this. And when we get to the end of the story of the Gospels and to the resurrection, we know that he has done something about this. And so in the Acts of the Apostles, the story of what happens in the church after Jesus' resurrect, death and resurrection, we find these words in chapter 2. God raised Jesus up, having freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Romans chapter 6, Paul echoes this when he says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, death. And it's as if death is his force in the universe. Death no longer has dominion over him. In his second letter to Timothy, he adds this, our Savior Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the good news of his death and resurrection in the book of Revelation at the very end of the story, which is really the reversal of the Garden of Eden story, as when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, we read this, the risen Jesus speaks and he says, I was dead, and see, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, the place of the dead. I have power over it. And I long to share that power with one and all. One day, says the Apostle Paul, we will see this clearly. Now, we don't see it all clearly, he says. Now we see through a mirror dimly. It's only as if the, the beginning of the end of death has come in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But its end is sure. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Destroyed, but we don't quite see it yet. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And Revelation, God will wipe every te tear away from their eyes at that moment. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. So something happens in history with the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, and then with Easter, Jesus being raised from the dead. It's as if God has placed his seal on the end of life as we know it as human beings, where death is the end of everything. And Jesus says, no, I have conquered death. In the meantime, we don't fully see this, but it's going to happen in time. And there will come this time, and we live in hope of this as those who trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What does this mean for us on a practical level? Two things that I want to share with you today when we think about the death of death and the death of Jesus. The first is this, that we need to take seriously that in Jesus' ministry, he was constantly seeking to destroy the forces of death and all that leads to death. So if you were to look at the various things that Jesus does and you want to find an umbrella onto which you want to put them, 
Jesus is throughout his ministry, not just in his death, but throughout his ministry and all that he does in feeding people and in his miracles, he is fighting against the powers of death. And he is bringing life into those situations in which it seems as if death has the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. Life is muddied right now. But we know that life will have the final word in Jesus and we are to follow him in whatever we do to pursue the forces of life rather than death. This is a little bit muddied just now, I have to admit. How do we pursue the forces of life rather than death? We're in the middle at the moment, and things are a little muddied. Let me see if I can clarify it by uh, perhaps raising something that may cause more problems than it's worth, but I'm going to try it anyway. When it comes to some of our political uh, sound bites these days, one of the phrases, and there are many of these on both the right and the left, one of the sound bites that causes a lot of heat, of course, is sound bite pro-life, pro-choice, pro-life. But let me focus on pro-life. I would call myself pro-life, but, pro-life, but, 95% pro-life. When I look at scriptures, I have to be for life, and I'd rather use that phrase because it's not so political, for life. I'm for life. I'm against war. Hope we're all against war. But there's a time when, as we see just now, in a world in which we're not quite at the end yet, in which evil still is around, even though it's going to be defeated, in which we might say, hey, yeah, there's a time for war. I'm against abortion. But in a world where women are abused and raped, and where women's lives are threatened by men, usually, sadly, there's a time for this. I'm against the death penalty, with so many wrongfully accused being sentenced to death, disproportionately black, there's something wrong with our justice system. And yet, yet the scriptures say that there's a time for that as well, when blood cries out from the ground, and there is only one thing that is fitting. So I'm for life in a muddied world, where I sometimes feel as if the sound bites just confuse the issue. These are ultimately unresolvable issues. And instead of being for each other, we fight against each other. And in that fight, we are not for the life of the other. How strange is that? And trying to be on one side of the other saying, I'm for life in this or I'm for life of that. We're at each other's throats. I think what Jesus would say is something like this. Just get on with it where you can. Don't try to resolve, though we must do the best we can. I know that all of these unresolvable issues, just get on with it. So what do we find? We find Jesus touching a woman who has a hemorrhage, and the life is, as it were, coming out of her. And he wants the life to go back into her, just a normal human being where he can, he does that. And someone's daughter, how human is that? He just gets involved in the situations of life wherever he can, and with the power that he has, he brings life in the face of imminent death. This is what we have been called to do. We need to take seriously that in Jesus' ministry and in his death, he works for life to destroy the forces of death and all that leads to death. The second thing is this, that if physical death is not necessarily the end, if there is light at the end of the tunnel that comes to us through Jesus, if there is more to come, we better make sure that we're on the train that goes from death to life. 
and from life to life, thereon after and forever. We better make sure that we are connected, reconnected to the one who alone has the power to lead us through death and on to the other side. Or to put it in terms of the song, when the saints go marching in, when the trumpet begins to sound, we better be in that number. And how do we do that? Well, by hitching our wagon to the one who alone entered death and came out the other side, who has the keys of death and Hades in his pocket, as it were. We're connected with him, and he alone can take us through. We don't get there by trying harder. There's nothing we can do no human being has ever been able to do to get past death securely by themselves, no matter how hard they try. The only way we can do this is to hitch our wagon to the one who has been there and done that and to hold on to him. And this is what we mean by believing in Jesus. So John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave to the point of death on the cross, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And that belief is not just mental assent, it's entrusting our lives into his hand. Or think of Jesus' words, in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. That's how he defines himself. He's the enemy of death. I am the enemy of death. I am the one who has conquered death. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, it's a little muddied just now, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he adds this, do you believe this? And that ultimately is the bottom line, isn't it? Do you believe this? Not just in your head, but do you entrust your life into the hands of the only one who has conquered death for us? And conquers death, not just for us, but for the whole of the universe. This is what we need to do. It's rather like getting in an airplane. Do you believe a plane can fly? Yes. What are you going to do about it? Will you get into it? No, I don't. Well, yes, that tells you what you believe. So you get into the plane, and yes, you do believe that a plane can fly and get you from here to here. Do you believe that the elevator can go all the way to the top? Yes, I do. Well, step into it and let it carry you all the way to the top. Do you believe that Jesus conquers death? Enter into his life, hook, line, and sinker into him, and he will carry you, and you must let him do this wherever he goes through all of life, and beyond life, beyond death, to life eternal. This is what we must do with the one who on the cross destroyed the power of death. One final word from Revelation 21. The reversal of the Garden of Eden. The day you eat of it, you shall die. The final word in Revelation is this. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away because God has sent his son into the world to live for us and to die for us and to conquer death for us. And into his hands, we must commit the course of our life as those who seek life for ourselves and others and indeed our whole eternal future. Maybe do this together. Let us pray. Almighty God, we bow before you. We pray that your life would invade our lives, where we have thought that we could find life by ourselves. Convince us that this is but an illusion. So may we depend upon you for life now, 
for the path of life now. May we be agents of your life in this world and for all eternity. Amen.